Can't open your Bibles, beloved, to Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32. And um, we'll read through this together, all of it. And then uh, we'll pray and we'll get back. We'll, we'll, we'll get into this text together tonight. Isaiah 32. Isaiah writes, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the eyes of those who hear will give attention. The ear of the, the heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity, to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In little more than a year you will shudder, you complacent women. For the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joy, joyous houses in the exultant city. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit is poured, out, poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness." And righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. And it will hail when the forest falls down, and the city will be laid utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. Let's pray together. Father, I'm grateful. I'm really grateful to you for texts like these. Like this one right here. Where, Lord, we, we see your hope. The hope of, of, of this, of the new kingdom, your kingdom, as this brilliant diamond against the black backdrop. And the facets of it are beautiful. And Lord, the beauty of it is so needful for us. As we look at this text tonight, Father, I pray that you would use it to establish and strengthen us in you. Father, to make firm our hope, to strengthen our faith, to, Father God, make us to rest um, in the sure promise of your faithfulness to your people. Lord, I am grateful that our hope is not like the hope that is in this world that is this, you know, fleeting desire that something may happen, 
but that our hope is concrete and secure because your word is the truth. Because you are, you are not a man that you should lie, but you are God. And every word you speak proves true. So I pray, Lord, that as we study this text together, you would encourage our hearts. And I pray, Father, that we would come to um, a deeper and uh, a, a just a, a more unshakable trust in you. Thank you for my brothers and sisters that are here tonight. I pray that this would be a time of blessing for them and that these words, Father God, would bring forth um, just fruit from um, their fertile hearts, God, that are turned toward you. So thank you again for just being our God and for choosing us to be your people. And thank you for your faithfulness to us that you display repeatedly. We love you and we bless you in the name of Christ. Amen. So I mentioned to you... uh, you know, last week that tonight we're going to be getting into a couple of sermons that are different from the ones that we've been just looking at. You know, just the previous sermons that we looked at, the last four, um, were about really the, the darkness and the depravity that was in Judah, the, the wretchedness of their government, um, the fact that they had chosen to seek refuge and security um, through human scheming and looking for it in, um, you know, Egypt specifically as their idol, their of choice. You know, and, and it was a, it was sermons that were focused on, um, a call to repentance and focused on a call to humility and focused on, you know, a call to confess the idolatry and the, and the foolishness that had encompassed, um, the heart of Judah, right? Um, and, and, and obviously, deliberately, um, they were focused on bringing Hezekiah in particular to repentance, right? As the king of Judah, um, with Sennacherib on the outskirts, of, of Jerusalem. The whole idea was to, to drive Hezekiah to repentance. But the focus kind of shifts in these next two sermons, okay? And the focus turns primarily to Isaiah's glorious vision of, of a kingdom that's truly under the righteous reign of a faithful and a godly king, okay? Um, Ultimately, what we'll see is that, that what's in view here is the righteous reign of the Messiah, right? The promised one, the only true King and Lord Jesus Christ, right? But it's a text that unfolds for us, you know, the perfection of a godly kingdom where the Lord's presence is manifest in power. And it's really a text of promise. It's a text of joyful hope set against this backdrop of present darkness in, in Judah. Like this, I mean, obviously, there's a stern reality facing them. Um, a destroyer's on the move. Everything that they have tried has not slowed Sennacherib's tracks. Um, foolish diplomacy has failed. The nation's leaders have been worthless and led them into to, to trusting in fantasies instead of the Lord Almighty. And so, you know, there, the, the, the wolf was at the door. And there was indeed. For the remnant in Isaiah's day to be encouraged. And, and I would say to you, it's an evil text um, in our own day. Now, I think about it as we consider the state of our nation and the state of our world. You know, it's hard sometimes to even look at the news anymore. You know, um, first of all, it's hard to know what's true and what isn't. Right. And then when you find what you think is a true news source, I mean, it's it's just hard to look at. We see this uncertainty. We see this political turmoil, you know, um, the way that we seem to be marching inexorably towards a war with China and Russia, like we're that stupid, you know, um, we, we seem to see this, you know, the, the, all the economic instability, the, the rampant and blatant and open corruption in our government. Um, 
the multiple layers of deception in our news media, the death of truth as a universally accepted reality, and then on top of it, the open rebellion against God, not only in our culture, but, you know, in apostate churches, even the subtle, um, you know, rebellion in professing churches. And so we need the message of this text that, praise God, it's not always going to be this way, right? It's not always going to be this way. Um, and so this text really, I think, serves to strengthen our souls, to assure us that God's on his throne and that he's actively directing the events of history towards the eternal, eternal day of his consummated and everlasting kingdom. And that in the meantime, he's with us even now and, and that he's not going to forsake his people who trust in him. Right. So let me just kind of give you an outline of what we're going to see in these next two chapters, because they are it's tightly woven and it's and it's. Um, interrelated. So here's what we're going to look at. These chapters are unified, like I said, by their focus on the theme on the theme of godly government, a government that is grounded ultimately in the manifest presence of God. Okay, and 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 of the people's glad trust in Him. The theme I think becomes obvious at once in the opening line of, of chapter 32. Just look at it, where he says, "Behold, a king will reign in righteousness." Right. And then when we get to chapter 33, it'll come to a climax towards the end of chapter 33 in verse 22 with the confession, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us, right? So at present, Judah's faced with, you know, the utter bankruptcy of human government that's based in human wisdom and arrogance. And it's against that background that Isaiah points to the only alternative that could secure the nation's future. And that was... A government grounded in the kingship of God. And at the last possible moment, we know Hezekiah repents. He turns to the Lord and, you know, as much as he can in a corrupt nation, he tries to turn the nation back to the Lord. But beyond Hezekiah, Isaiah envisions this new age that is the fulfillment of the words that the Lord Jesus Christ taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? That's what we're looking forward to. So Isaiah develops this theme in sort of four movements. The first movement is, is chapter 32, verses 1 through 8, where he lays out the vision of this godly government, the fruit that comes from it. And then the second movement is in verses 9 through 20 that describes there can be no shortcut to, to this glorious ideal. It can only come in one way. It has to come through the judgment of the existing governments and then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Right? And then the third movement, chapter 33, verses 1 through 6, reviews sort of in more particular terms the steps by which this new age will come to be. God will arise. He'll destroy his destroy, the destroyer. He'll establish his rule of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. And then the fourth and final movement, kind of from verses 7 through 24, fills out that review with specific elements of how God is going to do it, what he's going to do. And so these chapters are tightly constructed. And they orbit around this truth, right? The Lord is judge. The Lord is lawgiver. The Lord is king. The Lord will save us. Okay? So let's look at Isaiah's vision, first of all, of a good, a godly, and an ideal government. Right? Look first at me at verse 1 again. This is great. He says, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Now, I think it's interesting here that Isaiah leaves the king unnamed. Right? There's not a name given to this king. It's just a king. Right? And, and the interesting thing about that, what Isaiah is doing is he's using a Hebrew literary device that's known as, are you ready? The idiom of indefiniteness. 
Okay? The idiom of indefiniteness. In other words, here's what he's saying. He's saying something like this. He's saying, a king, you know who I'm talking about, will reign in righteousness. That's the idea of the idiom of indefiniteness. I'm not going to mention him because you know who he is, right? That's the idea here, right? And so we do know that king, what king he's talking about, don't we? Right? We, we know that king that he's talking about. He's talking about the divinely empowered ruler, the messianic king he's already mentioned in chapters 9 and 11, right? That same king who now is identified as Yahweh in chapter 33 and verse 22. So the Messiah originally was thought of as a human king, right? We know, though, standing on this side of the cross, that's not the case, okay? And there's no con- contradiction between a king who is human and a king who is God because in Christ, the God-man king, you know, is made evident. So we understand this, that, that, that he, this prophecy will ultimately be fulfilled in the Messiah who is himself God. Still, the focus here is not even so much on, you know, the ruler as it is on the quality of his government, the quality that will characterize his rule. Okay, so look what Isaiah does here. He he envisions this glorious government in which both the king and his princes, okay, the king and, and his officials or his rulers will govern in righteousness. That is, according to what is right and pleasing in the eyes of God. They'll do everything perfectly, right? What's in conformity to God's character? And they will rule in justice. That is, they'll apply the principles of God in a proper and in a right manner. In other words, there will be real justice in this kingdom. Not the imaginary justice of, you know, our current age, right? He's picturing here a government that's established and that's formed, and that's shaped, and that operates according to God and His wills and His, His will and His ways. In other words, that operates in perfection. Okay? And then he describes the blessing of such a kingdom. Look what he says in verse 2. He says, Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock, in a weary land. Now let me say something about this really quickly. The, the word each here, you know, is a perfectly acceptable translation, but it kind of misses the point. Okay? And here's why I'm saying that. What we have here again is another idiom of indefiniteness. Okay? <laughs> and, but you know, what this is, the word that's translated here as each, is actually the Hebrew word ish. Anybody know what that word means? Man. Man. Yeah, it's the Hebrew word for man. And it's pointing to a great or unique, a special man and those men that serve him, okay? And it's a man, again, that we should know because Isaiah's already talked about him. And so it refers to the king, the one of whom Isaiah said earlier, you know, his name shall be, or I'm sorry, the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace, right? And then Isaiah chapter 11, he's described as the one that the, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And the idea here with that word each, you know, what they're trying, what the translators are trying to capture is, is that this man and his princes will be for his people a place of security. 
He will be a place of, they will be for the, for his people, a, a place of protection from every threat. That's the idea behind a hiding place and a shelter. Not only that, he'll be a provider. They will be providers, a supplier of water and shade in an arid land that points to provision for every need. So you've got this perfect king, and then you've got these like perfect princes and officials that serve underneath him. But not only that, you've got a transformed populace, right? Look what Isaiah says in verses 3 and 4. He says, Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The people will be different. The problem in Judah was what? That they were blind and deaf, right? They were were blind and deaf to the truth of God. They were blind and deaf to the word of God. They wouldn't listen to what God had to say. They couldn't see and perceive what God was doing. And that former spiritual blindness, that indifference, will be overcome by the superior power of God's grace, right? Those that were hasty, you know people like that, that are prone to act rashly or impulsively or emotionally or irresponsibly. They won't do it anymore. They'll understand His truth and they'll act in accordance with His will. They will do what is wise and what is pleasing and what is in accordance with the truth of God. And then last, the one who doesn't speak well and is confused about the Lord and the things of God will all of a sudden manifest insight and clarity. Plain speech that's rightly understood. And in addition, this is the beautiful part, the times of the fool and the scoundrel who misled and took advantage of his people, of God's people, will come to an end. And they'll be seen for what they are and they'll be judged accordingly. Isaiah says in verse 5, The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. I think about that whenever I see like award shows, you know, and stuff like that. I mean, seriously, like in our imperfect world, honor and virtue and esteem are often applied and given to those who most definitely do not deserve it. Isn't that true? You know, but that's all going to change forever. Now, I want you to notice that the two classes, this is very interesting, the two classes that Isaiah takes up here. He talks about the fool, and he talks about the scoundrel. But when you drill down into his definition for the fool, you begin to see that he's talking about the religious and spiritual leaders in Judah. And then when you dig down into scoundrel a little bit, you begin to see that he's talking about the political, governmental leadership. Look at this with me. Isaiah first takes up the fool, the case of the fool, and he says this, verse 6. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied and to deprive the thirsty of drink. The fool, he says, speaks folly. Why? It's because that's all he can do. What else can a fool do but speak folly? Isn't that right? Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools speak out of what they know 
And since they do not know or fear God, their words, therefore, are worthless and empty, aren't they? The fool acts, you know, according to Isaiah, any sense of spiritual or moral obligation. He's, he's busy with iniquity. His life is consumed with the pursuit of iniquity, the pursuit of ungodliness. He speaks out of what he does not know. And therefore, he speaks error and deceit concerning the Lord. Now, he's bad enough to just speak foolishness, right? But to speak foolishness and error regarding the Lord, I mean, that's multiplied times worse, isn't it? And here's why. Because he feigns an authority and an understanding of God that he doesn't have. And here's, here's what happens. For that reason, he leaves people who are spiritually hungry and thirsty. That's the picture here. He leaves the spiritually hungry and thirsty unsatisfied and empty. TV preachers. Not just them, though. But them for sure. And then all the wannabe TV preachers that just haven't gotten on TV yet. Right? I would say that's an apt description not only of, you know, false teachers, but also of those whom we put in their place. You ever notice how often we have entertainers and sports figures and social pundits, you know, speaking on behalf of God? It's remarkable to me. And people eat it up because they're not discerning. I would say to you this, you know, I know some of y'all love Jordan Peterson. And I would say to you that Jordan Peterson, you know, is a, as much as an unbeliever can be is a solid philosopher. Okay, as much as an unbeliever can be, he's a solid philosopher. But he started this whole thing of like studying through Genesis and Exodus with his band of liberal men. And I'm going to tell you right now, he has no business speaking on those things. No business at all. Right. Like you got to be careful. You know, God's word calls such people fools. And why is it? I'll just give you a few. I'm just, let me just run through the scripture quick. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Well, you say, well, he doesn't say there is no God. No, the fool also says in his heart, this is who God is as I perceive him to be, which is a no God, right? The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Isn't that true? Doing wrong is like a joke to a fool, but wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. The wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. And that's what Isaiah says here. The day of the fool is coming to an end. Then Isaiah describes the scoundrel. It's interesting to find that word in the Bible, isn't it? Scoundrel. It just feels like it doesn't fit, but that's a great word, right? As for the scoundrel, he says his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. This is a very interesting picture here, right? The the scoundrel represents or describes a reprobate, right? Somebody that's just an unprincipled person altogether. Um, Somebody that's a swindler or a fraudster, a trickster, a charlatan, that kind of thing, right? Everything that he does, Isaiah says, everything that he does, his devices... They're motivated by evil. They're motivated by self-advantage at the expense and the hurt of others. Right? That's the idea here. Since he's willing to employ any means that he needs to, that are in his power, provided that he can generate some kind of profit or social advancement for himself. And specifically what what the, the picture here that Isaiah draws for us is that he exploits the poor by manipulating the legal system. 
offering false and distorted testimony in order to secure his desires. I'm a ten. I, I think of politicians, man. Both bureaucrats and elected, or some would say selected officials. That's them, isn't it? They don't serve the people. They don't serve the people but themselves. And they take advantage of the people for their own gain. I mean, how is it that somebody goes into Congress, right? With like, I don't know, $200,000 in the bank to their name and they come out a hundred millionaire. How does that work? I mean, I got to get on that savings program, whatever it is, the one they're using, right? Praise God, their day will come to nothing, right? Isaiah says, he says, but he who is noble plans noble things, upright, godly, righteous things. And on those noble things, he stands. The noble, the righteous, those that that do what's pleasing in the eyes of God, he will stand firm in that day. There's a righteous government coming. and And the noble person will stand firm. But before that can come, the wicked government of men must be destroyed. And that's really the point of what Isaiah says next. He says, look at it, starting in verse 9. We'll just read through verse 11. He says, rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In little more than a year you will shudder, you complacent woman. For the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip. That doesn't mean naked. It means put on the clothes of a slave. And make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. Now Isaiah's singling out the women here, right? I think he did that once before. Back in, uh, no, I think he did. Wasn't it in Isaiah 3 where he, where, he, where he singled out the women? I think it was. I'm just looking real quick. Uh, the tinkling of all, the, what is, all that. Was it in chapter? I can't remember if it's in chapter 3. It might not have been chapter 3. I guess off the top of my head, but it might be wrong. Was it three? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's it. But here's what I want you to see, okay? Isaiah is not, you know, being a patriarchal misogynist here, okay? That's not what he's doing. The male leadership has already been hammered by Isaiah pretty severely by his stern and his unrelenting preaching, right? But he turns now to the women of Judah, and he issues a call to them to mourn and and to lament. Why do you suppose he does that? Well, the reason is because in general... And I'm saying that in general, women are more sensitive than men. Usually. It's changing a little in our age, but, you know, but he calls them out here on their complacency and their false security and their apathetic contentment with just the way things are, believing that, you know, things are just, it's going to be okay. It can just continue like this indefinitely, right? He expects that the women will hear and they're going to take God's warning of judgment to heart. And they better because in a little over a year, he says, they're going to be appalled at what they would see. And that's facts. Jerusalem was going to be saved by the intervention of God, but Judah, the countryside, was, was going to be ransacked and laid waste, you know. And, and the vineyards and, and everything, the grape harvest, it was all, it was all going to be destroyed. And so he, he calls them to mourn and repent in light of that, that, that coming judgment, Right. But it's not only the immediate judgment that's in view. And the reason I say that is by what we read in verses 12 through 14 that don't match up with what happens regarding Assyria and Sennacherib. Look what it says. Beat your breasts. 
for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people, growing up in thorns and briars, just for all the joyous houses in the exalted city. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys and a pasture of flocks. I want you to see what he's doing here, okay? Isaiah calls them to mourn for an even greater judgment that he foresees, which is the abandonment of the once fruitful land of Judah to non-cultivation altogether, to the briars and to the thorns, to the emptying out of the city of Jerusalem, to the palace being forsaken and the hill and the watchtower, right? The, the hill that, 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 you know, upon which Judah or Jerusalem was constructed and the watchtowers that surrounded it becoming the habitat of wild beasts. In other words, he's describing here the end of Judah's government. That doesn't happen until the fall of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, right? More than a century after Sennacherib's invasion. But Isaiah sees these two events as, part, as parts of one divine process of judgment. There'll be a little reprieve. But the judgment's coming because this wicked government needs to be dismantled. And the men that represent it and the destruction, dismantling of Judah's government is really is a picture of the government of man coming to nothing. The government of man on earth coming to nothing. So that the eternal government of the king of righteousness will be established. But how's that going to be? Well, Isaiah tells us, right? We need to understand, first of all, that in verse 14, the word that's translated there is forever. It's a word that can also mean for a very long time or for an indeterminate time. For, for a a time that seems to stretch on almost forever. And that's the way that we should take it here. The desolation that is brought on by God's judgment will last a long time as government after government of mankind devolves and is, you know, comes to nothing, right? We've seen that in history, right? Invincible kingdoms fall in a night. It's going to all, all this... Desolation will last a long time, but eventually it will give way to this new era of divine blessing that's inaugurated by the pouring out of the Spirit. Look at this. This is so awesome. The desolation will last, Isaiah says this, until verse 15, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, the least likely place. Right And righteousness will abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. That is beautiful. The coming of the king will mean the pouring out, the outpouring of God's Spirit upon His people. A divine and a new life. The Spirit of God, right? Who's at work at creation. The Spirit of God who's a life giver. The Spirit of God who empowered, you know, God's people for mighty deeds. Who indwelt the messianic figures of the Old Testament. The promise now is that He will give God's people new life. He won't just dwell in the Messiah. He would dwell in the Messiah's people. That's the idea. 
The one who empowers, you know, the, 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 the oh, I'm sorry, the Spirit of God will, will rest in fullness not only on the King, like we read about in verse 11, or chapter 11, but it'll be poured out on the people of God as a whole. And it's in this universal bestowal of the Spirit that God's rule will be made fully effective in the lives of His people. And where do we see that come to fruition? Pentecost. Pentecost. Isaiah describes this transformed creation that will accompany the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's great. He says, the wilderness become a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. He talks about how this new society will be marked by justice and righteousness everywhere, even where you wouldn't expect it. And among all the people... And then he describes this perfected society that will be the result. He says the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. The effect of a society that's ruled by righteousness will be shalom. Right? Which is a big word. You know, we translate it as peace, but it is big. It is the concept of complete wholeness and peace with God, of blessed and harmonious relationships, of perfect contentment and satisfaction, of peace and rest, of life as it's intended to be, right? And the result of, of, of that righteousness will be, will be quietness and trust, you know, no more being disturbed and, and troubled and, 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 and worried. It'll be quietness and trust. It'll be fulfillment and security. It'll be joy and tranquility. It's the kind of government, the kind of rule, man, for which we all long, isn't it? And wouldn't that be perfect? God promises that to His people. My people, God says. I love that. My people is what He says. My people. My people. That's a very intimate phrase, right? That's a, that is a, an intimate ring to it, right? My people. In the Old Testament, it's the faithful remnant from Israel and Judah that truly feared the Lord. In New Testament terms, it is, it's those, both Jews and Gentiles, who call upon the name of the Lord and trust in Christ as Messiah and Savior. Those are the ones, my people, God says, that will enjoy at last the blessings that the good government of God will provide. Right? Then Isaiah gives us a really short conclusion. Look what he says in verses 19 and 20. He says, And it will hail... When the forest forest falls down and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters. Who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. Anybody know what Isaiah means there? Most commentators. Yeah, it's a strange epilogue. Most, Most commentators will say, I think the copyist got this out of place. Seriously. They have said, they'll make the argument that, well, we're, and this really belongs, I think, at the end of verse 14. That's my studied opinion. Right? My studied opinion is that they're incorrect. <laughs> I think they're wrong. I think what Isaiah is communicating in a symbolic way is this. Look, 
He's been saying this over and over again. Judgment and glory lie ahead, right? And now is the time to respond to the Lord in faith. To cast your bread on the waters. Now's the time. Now's the time to trust in Him. The human government of this world that does not regard God is coming to an end and it's going to fall and it's going to be laid low. It's going to happen in an instant like hail falling out of heaven. But for those who repent and hear God's voice, there will be happiness. There will be real and true blessedness, right? There will be just... You can let the donkey and you can let, you can let the ox and the donkey range free because there's no fear. And now really isn't the time to halt between two opinions because there's a vast distinction between the believer and the unbeliever. In fact, I, I, think, I think about the words of Malachi, the last prophet in Israel before John the Baptist some 400 years later, right? When he says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, talking of his people, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. I really only have one closing thought on this text. Okay, here's my closing thought. Obviously, the ultimate consummation of this eternal kingdom, this eternal government is the, of the kingdom of God is, is awaiting the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We're awaiting... The, the great judgment, the establishment of the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth where, you know, in the words of Revelation, the dwelling place of God is with man. And He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither thou shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Amen and amen, right? The safety and the security, the blessedness, the joy, it'll reach its climax when, when Christ rules and reigns over His people for eternity. To be loved and adored and worshipped and enjoyed and joyfully served by those whom He's redeemed by His blood. That's true. Okay? And I don't want to diminish that in the least. That is the consummation of it all. But I do not want us to miss this truth. This government is being established right now in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in all the little faithful churches all around this country and all around the world where the true people of God gather and worship. The only place of safety and security in this world, the only place of peace with God is in the Lord Jesus Christ and, and in the company of those who are His own. A Christian without a church is a Christian in trouble. Christ can't be the head without a body, right? He can't be king without a kingdom. He can't be mediator without a people whom he's redeemed, or without people that he has mediated for. He cannot be a redeemer without his church. The true church seeking God's face and delighting in his word and pursuing obedience, worshiping and serving him, beloved, that is the first fruits of the eternal kingdom. It's the visible first fruits. We are the visible first fruits of the kingdom that is coming. It, we are an outpost. The church is an outpost, really, of the kingdom of God surrounded by the kingdom of darkness. That's what we are. The true church 
is a fellowship under the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ that transcends the kingdoms of darkness in this world. And it ought to be exactly how it ought to be moving towards, it ought to be seeking to preserve and, and, and to have exactly what Isaiah describes here. Peace, righteousness, quietness, trust, security, rest. That's what should be, you know, that's what we should look like. It's a picture of the heavenly city to come. At best, a picture of the society and culture of heaven. Because we're one body and we're one family and we're one fold and we're one kingdom and we are all partaking of the same spirit. I will say to you this, you know, and so many of the reformers will testify to this. There is nothing in the world like a church that looks like the world to come. There's nothing in the world like a church that looks like the world to come because there's nowhere on earth that you will be nearer to heaven than in a church like that. I know there are those that are like, not me, man. Like, you don't understand. I can commune with God better than I can commune with God with other people. I would just ask you to consider this. In heaven, there is no solitary confinement for saints that are better at communing with God than others. That is pomposity and arrogance at its worst. So, yeah, this kingdom, the consummation, we're awaiting Christ. But the first fruits is right now. That's why loving one another, loving Christ together, worshiping Him together, serving each other in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you, right? Esteem others greater than yourself. Thank you. Right? That's why that's so important right now. Anyways, that's my one thought. Do you guys have anything? I'll leave it to you if you have anything else. But it better be good. <laughs> Jesse. Great mischief in all the kingdom idea is always manifested, at least in its worst form, in this outward, visible way. You know, like a, a building. Yeah. Or a denomination or something that is... Because you belong to that, or you go to this building. Or some dude's ministry. <laughs> right? So and so's ministries. Anything outward like that, I mean, the kingdom of God is invisible. Yeah. In that sense. But it should be, just like you say, behold how they love one another. That's what drew people. Yeah. The Roman, yeah, especially like in the Roman days when they were like, you know. What happened here? Like these people love one another, and they die for one another. They serve like, you know, it was marked contrast. Anybody else? All right, let's pray then. Blessed Lord, we are grateful to you. Um, so grateful to you that you're our King, and that you have made us your people, and you brought us into your kingdom, and not by. External means, not by the threat of sword, 
Father, not by the threat of, you know, some kind of ostracism or kind of social penalties, but Lord, you have brought us into your kingdom by your sovereign, electing, pursuing love through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so we praise you and we thank you for that, Lord God. And we know that we stand secure, Father, because the faith that you give to us can never be lost or overturned. And, Lord, the faith by which we lay a hold of you is a gift because you've already laid hold of us. I pray, Lord, you would encourage our hearts with what we've read tonight, what we've studied. And I pray that it would, these words would impel us, Lord God, to pursue the ideals of the kingdom with one another in this place. And Lord, so shine um, before this world as a light, a light in the darkness that brings glory to your holy name. Thank you for uh, just being with us. Thank you for your great kindness and your mercy. And Lord, I pray now that as we seek your face in prayer, you would hear us and that Spirit of God, you would, you would just turn our hearts to pray for that which is pleasing. Um, thank you for all that you are to us and for us. And we bless you in the name of Christ. Amen.